Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. How can we think about disabled people as makers and not just as users? In this episode of Contra, I continue the conversation with Corbett O'Toole about disabled people as designers, tinkerers, and experimenters with environments of daily life. Um, So this also kind of relates to a broader issue that you and I have talked about a lot, uh, which is the types of circumstances and experiences that have basically like enabled and forced, depending on how you think of it, um, a lot of disabled people, maybe even most disabled people to redesign things in daily life to make them more accessible. Um, So I wonder if we could just like start to talk about that. Um, You initially, like when we met many years ago at the Society for Disability Studies conference, I remember uh, we were in like a discussion group and we were talking about this. And then later you had pointed me to some historical examples that ended up being in my book, for example, around curb cuts. Um, But yeah, just like what are your thoughts about this um, phenomenon and how have you participated in it and what have you observed over time? Well, I think it's really fascinating that nobody, I mean, except a few of us, even imagines that disabled people would have to become designers. When everything we've set up to this point in the interview is basically all about how the world creates access barriers. So, you know, the people are through the looking glass, which is a group that works with parents with disabilities, did a study on their kids on their like non-disabled kids. What, did, what was it like growing up with a disabled parent? What did you learn? Because a lot of the studies presume, I mean, certainly in Britain, there's a whole thing about carers, young carers and the burden of having a disabled parent. And what they came back with in the, in the Through the Looking Glass study was kids who have disabled parents have much higher levels of troubleshooting skills and resilience. And I feel like that's a direct result of the way that if you're in that kind of intimate contact as a kid would be growing up as a disabled parent, you get to see that everyday way of figuring stuff out. Mm. You know, I'm in a wheelchair. I get to a building. What do I do when I can't get in? Um, who do I grab? Like, is it, you know, how do I reach something on a shelf that I can't use? Like, do I use the store person who may or may not be available to help me go down the aisles? Or do I just grab a random stranger when I need one item at a time? Like we are constantly, it's like, we're like the world's two-year-olds. We are constantly, I heard this great definition of a two-year-old. A two-year-old is a scientist and we are their lab. And all they're kind of constantly doing is testing, 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 you know, which theories work and can I do this and kind of, you know. And I feel like disabled people in the very best sense of that word are like, we are, we are constantly experimenting. We're constantly asking questions. We're constantly challenging our environments. And when we have to function in a particular environment, we're figuring out cool stuff to do. Like, you know, I joke that the dollar store is our favorite hack place Mm -hmm. because 
you know, I know disabled people that have very limited arm reach and they use, they'll go to the dollar store and sometimes it'll be a coat hanger and sometimes it'll be the, um, the bamboo um, back scratchers, like something that can give them a pull or, um, you know, the, the dinosaur um, kind of clamp toy that they're using as a grabber or, you know, dots from the store that people put on stuff blind people put on stuff just to market. It doesn't have to be full braille. They just have to know where the button is kind of thing, you know? And so disability stuff that's made for disabled audiences tends to be really expensive. So when my kid was little and, and she needed trunk balance and, you know, um, I wanted something we could take places, all that the disability system was giving me was a $400 piece of equipment that was made of plywood and weighed 50 pounds and sat on the floor, none of which I could use. So I just went to Toys R Us and I said, you know, which one of these is going to be the easiest for me to transport? And I looked in that aisle for um, kids seating when you take them to a restaurant and they don't have a, a kid chair. And like, that's what we used for four years. So it's, and, and then the other part of that is it's no good if only I know it. So a lot of disabled people's knowledge gets shared. It used to get shared. You know, there's this guy named Jim Lebrecht who's making a film called Crip Camp. And it's basically about he went to camp with Judy Human and a bunch of other people. And he talks about how that kind of community connection also creates shared community knowledge about and his argument that he makes in the film is that and I, this isn't giving it away because it's going to be on Netflix in a 10 seconds, um, is that when you have access to community that reminds you that you're a person worth being and shares the resources and knowledge of how to survive in an inaccessible world, that creates the environment for a disability rights movement. Mm -hmm. That he, he says that those two things are absolutely connected. And there are people, some people at WID at the World Institute on Disability did a study about disabled people who were doing things to change the world. And every one of them had an aha moment of realizing that the access problems weren't about them, but were about systemic problems. So there's, there's a real need when we figure something out you'll see these hacks, people sharing the hacks all the time, whether it's a food hack, like how do you make something that takes the least amount of spoons um, in the kitchen? Or how do you get food delivered when, like I do, when you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have, that's not rich and doesn't have good delivery? Um, but it's so funny to me when I see a design problem or I say to someone who's designing something, we could talk about this. And their attitude is kind of like, oh, I don't want to do something specialized just for you people. And I'm like, do you have any idea how many people benefit by the ways, you know, there was a great video a million years ago when curb cuts were new, where I think it was a student at UC Berkeley just put a camera there and just watched who was coming down the curb cut. It was just like from the knees down. And it was like one out of every 50 people using it was using a wheelchair. Um, there's an example of that, that this is like the first moment I remember ever being aware of disability. So I have tons of disabled people in my family on both sides of my family, but 
one of those people was an interior designer prior to becoming disabled, my aunt. Um, and she lived, so she lives in Mexico. Um, she uses a power wheelchair and she lives in this house that she designed herself and had this whole career as an interior designer. Her house has this like marble staircase that like goes in a circle and a spiral staircase. And, you know, for a long time she had to hire someone to carry her up the stairs to get to her bedroom because there were no bedrooms on the first floor. So I was like five or six years old and I remember going to her house and she was talking to like architects and fabricators and stuff about designing an elevator that ended up being like a glass elevator that went in the middle of the spiral. And so the next time that we visited, it was there. And it was this moment of like, oh, like she made this, she solved this problem. And my dad who, um, he's an engineer and he's very MacGyvery. Like he just, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I remember him kind of scheming with her about materials and like what, you know, what sorts of systems to use to like for the elevator to work. Like she basically like invented this elevator mm-hmm. herself. Um, and things like that, you know, like someone could say, well, she had prior training or whatever, but she never thought about stuff like that. She had literally built herself an inaccessible house that had a spiral staircase <laughs> with no railing. And she used to like go up and down. So it was like the most like able-bodied design mm-hmm. possible. Um, but then when she became disabled, she just like kind of like her creativity and aesthetic and everything just went in a totally different direction. And she started designing like swimming pools that were accessible Mm -hmm. for people that were like these beautiful kind of like ramped swimming pools and um, just like super cool stuff. And there's so many everyday examples of things like that too. Like, as you pointed out, it's not these like expensive hacks a lot of the times it's like what is available and what can people easily share with each other that like oh this is what I use and so maybe you can use it too um that kind of stuff I feel like needs to be documented and um and there's like an element of it where disabled people are sharing the information with each other, as you pointed out, like through different communities and networks. Um, and then there's also an element where there are a lot of non-disabled engineers are sort of reinventing the wheel a lot. Of oh gosh. Yeah. Cause they're not aware that like someone has already addressed this problem and they maybe just need it to be produced with like a different set of materials or it would be good for mass production or whatever. Or, you know, and a lot of that stuff is about, you know, it's intellectual curiosity. I mean, I forget the name, Karen, you might remember what Karen Nakamura has a name for this kind of design approach of, we're going to invent a hand that signs, or we're going to invent a wheelchair that climbs stairs. And I'm like, and no insurance is ever going to pay for it. Because do you understand that the insurance companies say that they won't pay for a wheelchair that has to work outside the home. It only has to work inside the home. Um, you're not making a wheelchair that could go into a bathroom. How am I going to get that stair climbing thing into it's And it's just, there's such a disconnect. You know, if one more person says, oh, exoskeletons. <sighs> and, and I'm like, you know, I'm not opposed to technology going, but like that film Fixed talks about, you know, real life is is a very different reality and you know with according to the census you know 
76% of people with disabilities in the United States are permanently unemployed. And the average income for a white man is like 15,000. And for women, it's white women, it's less and on and on and on. So it's like we need solutions that are community-based, low cost, easy to implement, easy to replicate, um, and, and really variable, you know, like having wall studs where the counter can be at 29 inches for me, but, you know, at, at 30 inches for somebody else. Like, that's the stuff that makes sense, not let's invent one table that costs, you know, $18,000 that goes from 30 inches to 29. It's anyway. Yeah, it's just, yeah totally. The term that comes to mind uh, that I've heard from Liz Jackson, which I think is her term is disability dongles. um like these kinds of just like random technological objects that are created that like very few disabled people actually want or can have access to but that's where the majority of funding and research and stuff goes into um with less attention to like how consumption will happen on the other side of manufacturing Well, and in that model, we're just the object. You know, I participated in a hackathon that was a nightmare. It was a disability hackathon. It was put on by Google and this company, TOM. And everything about it presumed that the disabled person was the object. And I want to say in parentheses of pity, because that was kind of how it was framed. The idea was these non-disabled people would come and a disabled person would sit there and say, I need a way to open the door. And the non-disabled people would build it and then everybody would be happy. And it wasn't really about disabled leadership or what disabled people really needed. And a couple of people, the one in San Francisco, were able to use it that way. But, you know, like the problem we took on, our team took on, is the fact that if you use a power wheelchair and you're a woman and you don't have a catheter, it's almost impossible to use the toilet independently. And I'm like... But yet the guys can, but, you know, because the wheelchair design just presumes the guys can pee in a cup or whatever, and they don't have to transfer out of their wheelchair. And so we just did this whole thing. And then like a very small project invented a way to get a seat off a wheelchair and up over a toilet. And that was just with some people kind of faking it as we went along. And I just think that, you know, disabled lead design is so critical. And yet so few of the, so few of the resources are available to something that disabled people are leading, mm-hmm. you know, partially because we're not in the engineering schools and we're not in whatever, but partially because, you know, just society just sees us as not very useful and disposable unless they can make money off of us. And so if someone can get a grant to build another exoskeleton and that's going to keep them employed for people employed for two years, then why not? You know? Yeah. From their point of view, from my point of view, it's like, oh, my gosh, we could so use, you know, wheelchair, like manual wheelchair tires that don't get flat so easily mm-hmm. or um, a prop- propulsion systems that work better. Or and, and nowadays with so much of the equipment with Medicare model where you have to pay 20 percent and everything's priced as if insurance is paying for it, more and more disabled people I know are buying their own equipment because the cost of the equipment is cheaper than paying the copay. So there's now this whole underground market of these two to $4,000 wheelchairs because they stay under the copay of a $30,000 power chair, but they provide some power chair function for certain kinds of bodies. Interesting. 
so that like the insurance uh, coverage and regulations guide the consumption of these technologies, but the people who are creating them are not necessarily like considering how much of it insurance is going to cover on the other end. Right. The people who are playing because, oh, this is an interesting design idea or challenge, rarely think about whether or not anybody will ever pay for it except out of pocket. And I mean, if they were just doing a basic business plan and they realize that 76% of the people are $15,000 or less, that that model isn't very sustainable. Yeah. I mean, what an interesting idea. I wonder what happens in the business plans that they do produce for these technologies, um, like who they're kind of pitching as the ideal consumer. I would love to see that because it seems it, it there seem to be like feasibility issues with like taking something like that to market if very few people are going to be able to buy it to begin with. But when I see the press about it and stuff, it's none of it's really about having an actual usable item for an actual disabled person. It's all about how cool the idea is and how cool it's, it's able-bodied people appreciating other able-bodied people's ideas of what they think might maybe be fun to melt as opposed to what's usable. Yeah. Like the ASL glove is an example. I remember like being in an archive that um, was owned by a very kind of like wealthy institution and there was a whole archive of the design of an asl glove that they had marketed and that they had paid for and then years later i heard about that same institution funding someone else to design an asl glove <laughs> and all the media about it was like first asl glove and i was like no literally this same funder has in their historical archive from like 20 years ago this other asl glove. like what are you talking about and the first one is actually designed by someone who is hard of hearing and there was an oral history with them so that was interesting at least but the second one was like some college students who had no relationship to disability so anyway um so something that's been coming to mind actually and i just said these words was this concept that you introduced in an article in Disability Studies Quarterly about the relationship to disability and people identifying their relationship to disability. And I send this article to people all the time because when we have conversations about, you know, disabled versus non-disabled designers, for example, um, there is some complexity in there that's about precisely the issue you pointed out before, which was like families, um, various like people who work as like staff or in care positions um, and the way that like allies kind of work with disabled people on different stuff and so I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about that concept and then how it could influence this broader discussion we're having about disabled designers versus non-disabled designers. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I want to give credit for that phrase. Actually, it belongs to Mel Chen. Oh, okay. Um, I was working on my book and I was really struggling with, uh, actually it was before I was working on my book, but I was struggling with ways to imprint, communicate beyond the disabled, non-disabled binary, because I felt like it didn't reflect what it meant to be a partner of someone with a disability, like how much, basically how much a person 
who wasn't disabled sees the everyday experiences of a person with disability and quite frankly is often asked to be a mediator in inaccessible environments, interpreting for their deaf partner or whatever. So I wanted language and I met with, I asked Mel to have a conversation with me. I was just talking about a lot of stuff, but I was really struggling with that particular framing. And Mel said, well, it sounds like what you're talking about is relationship to disability. And I was like, exactly. And then I hopefully have footnoted it appropriately, maybe not along the way, but, um, but that to me was the light bulb that opened the key to, that opened a whole bunch of rooms. So there's a couple of things that I think that are, important in that. And one is, as we were talking earlier, we were talking about, you and I were kind of presuming we were talking about people that had comfort and self-love about being disabled people. And I think far too often in the design world, the people who are being consulted with are people that are not at that stage yet. You know, so many people become disabled after the age of 18. And so they have this non-disabled life that they've lost. And so there's grief and there's adaptation and they don't want to lose their connection to their non-disabled community because they didn't have disabled people in that world before they became disabled. And they know that if they, the more they move to a disability self-love identity, the less they're going to be connected to their non-disabled communities in some ways, because those environments weren't, are no longer in many cases are no longer accessible to them based on their new disability. So I think that part of the dilemma that we have is not just, we need language, not just about what non-disabled people's relationship to disability is, but also what disabled people's relationship to disability is. I don't have any writing or, or advanced thinking about that, but it's something that I'm always aware of. Um, you know, especially when you get in environments and people don't complain or about access or people just say, oh, it's okay, I'll just go home, I'll take my refund, thank you for the refund for the event that I no longer could go to. Um, anyway, so that's one piece of that puzzle. And then the other piece is, one of the things that I think is extraordinarily problematic is if we are in a professional context talking about disability, why is it such a taboo for people to have be publicly stating their relationship to disability? And, you know, at the Society for Disability Studies, as you well know, but a lot of people, your listeners probably don't, it was a conference that brought together a lot of people working in disability that were in academic context, professors, researchers, et cetera, along with a lot of community scholars and also along a lot of students who were coming through the pipeline. So it was a pretty mixed environment. And as far back as the early 90s, there was a meeting of, I don't know, about 30 people having a conversation. And some of the original founders of the society were in that meeting. And we were, it was kind of an informal gathering. It was in Oakland that year. So it was pretty close to Berkeley. So there were a lot of disabled activists. And at some point, somebody said something. And a person in the group said, well, I mean, are you disabled? Like, what, what perspective are you coming from? Are you coming from, like, are you disabled? And the head, the person who had founded the Society for Disability Studies, it was me that said it, took me aside and said, don't you ever ask that again. Don't you ever say that again. These are our friends. We want them here. We need them if we want to grow this field. We do not discuss who is disabled in this room. And I was really angry and really shocked. 
And I also kind of remembered the thing about the Saul Alinsky thing about how you found it, how you found, found, create something so it shall grow. Mm. So if you create a culture where disabled people are both needed and talked about, but also not to be public, then you create this whole downstream problem that I think we have, which is that we've created an environment where non-disabled people get to speak for disabled people because we haven't said that disabled people have a particular structural positionality that makes it that makes them experts in some way. And so the whole thing is this big morass of, to me, of problems. Um, and in the book, what I tried to do is I decided that I'm also an archivist and I love history and I really wanted to make sure in my book and in my work that I leave a record of what people's positionality was in relation to disability. So when I did my book, I said, okay, there's two things I want to think about. I want to identify people who do personally identify as disabled. And I don't want to create problems for people in terms of employment or whatever about their diagnosis. So in my book, I said, you know, I, I offered every person in my book, even if they're in the footnotes, three possibilities. You can identify as disabled, non-disabled, or unknown. And which is which could also be read as declined to state. And in most cases, and, and the other thing I did was I only based it on people's public positions. So if I knew that publicly someone identified as non-disabled but privately was disabled, I used their public identifier. And I never, ever, never mentioned disability on um, specific medical categories of disability unless it was relating to something they were saying. Like, so the deaf woman speaking at the deaf domestic violence conference said, I am a deaf woman, I say this. But if she didn't, I wouldn't have said mm. that she was deaf. I would have just said that she was disabled, even though that's a huge other problem in the yeah. deaf disability world. But but that was the decision I made. And I didn't think it was sophisticated, but I felt like it was really historically necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the way that your book reads as a result of that is like much it's much improved over the sort of um, the the ways that those identifications are sometimes done by third parties. Like uh, very often there will be a focus on a diagnosis. And if someone does who's writing doesn't also share that diagnosis, they may like write about it in ways that are kind of weird or not how the person would have identified um, and I think it did like an important thing, just remembering to like the first time I read your book where, cause like you would say like, so-and-so parentheses disabled. And so it wasn't like foregrounded in the sense that it was like necessarily even part of the sentence. It was almost like a pronoun kind of thing. Like just clarifying like how that person is to be understood or how they've identified. And so it just kind of like helped keep track of like who who are the agents here and who's like doing a lot of the labor who's making a significant historical impact like those kinds of things um and it's just like one of many things like that in your book that you do that makes the argument in like both like a direct way like you have a lot of like direct arguments and then this like subtle argument that's part of the whole thing that's about like disabled people are doing things and we need to recognize that and also non-disabled people are doing other things and we need to be able to talk about like how much space 
non-disabled people take up in this history. Um, some of the other stuff that I remember from your book is like the footnotes appearing on the same page, which is really important for giving credit um, for sources. Whereas in a lot of academic texts, the citations all are in the back of the book and a lot of people don't even read them. Um, and then there's a kind of like accessible language style that you use also. Um, so all of that, I think, is it's like so connected that like you're you're basically like producing like a physical um, and like text based um, like material thing that is showing your design philosophy and your and your relationship to disability and your disability philosophy like in the book itself super cool and and you know there's somebody that wrote this really nice piece which i i have to track down about what if we thought about accessibility as if we were being gracious hosts to people in our homes Mm. and and it was something it was something like radical hospitality or something and i thought it was a really interesting reframing because you know, on one hand, what you just said about my book sounds like, oh, it was really thoughtful and really clear and also more like philosophically based. And that's true. And the reason it exists is because I have people in my life that don't like to read books. I have people in my life that um, the, the folks with learning disabilities said, if you put the footnotes anywhere except on the same page, it's I'll never find them. Um, it's why at the end of every chapter, there's a summary of what the main points of the chapter was and what the main resources are, because um, I wanted people to have a, a lot of information because I want people to challenge me. Like, you can't say that. Why did you think you could say that? I want the source to be right there. I also made sure all of my sources were publicly available on the Internet, like nothing's behind a firewall. Um but it was really because I wanted people I cared about to be able to read the book. And so that's to me also the advantage of being connected to disabled people and disability communities is that you're doing it because you care about the people in your life. It's not some abstract goody goody thing, which can come or go depending on whether you remember to be goody goody that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. It reminds me of the access is love hashtag and that idea of hospitality. That term, I think it can mean so many things, but when it's connected to access, it also, I think, appeals to a sense of like an ethical relationship towards visitors. And um, there are probably many people who just like don't care about being inhospitable or whatever, but you you would hope that most people would. Um, and then also the, the idea that like a lot of public spaces are part of the hospitality industry as well. Um, and that there are all of these levels at which people are thinking about, um, like what it means to create welcoming and usable and comfortable spaces and making the argument for disability to be central to that. And on a, on a not institutional level, my personal experience is that the more that a person I'm talking with or the more that the environment I'm in is connected with other people that don't have a lot of class privilege, the better it is. So I live in a poor neighborhood. So the stores are kind of mom and pop corner stores. Um, And, you know, there's access barriers, but their presumption when I go in the store is, oh my God, my customer is here. How can I make this work for her? As opposed to like when I go into Target and the point of sale machine is too high. And Target is actively 
I'm, and I'm really not using this lightly, they have a counter that has a high part and a low part, the same counter, and their point of sale machines are on the high part, and I can't use it, and I'm 5'5", five five, oh, wow. and I can't use it because I can't see the screen. And we've been in discussion with them to move it to the lower counter, and they have re- they literally nationally refuse to do it, and they're going to win, you know, and I, this is not a joke. They're literally winning, and it's this trend I see in the corporate sector where access is a burden, and they've figured out the least intrusive, the, the least amount of change they can make, and so I'm. It's this new concept I'm calling accessible but not usable Mm. you know what they've they're technically legal and all of us that use target now are going to have to live with this for a long time because they're winning the lawsuit but it's not usable but they don't care and that to me is really the tragedy of of the design approach that says it's about the law and it's about um mandated building codes when it really is about human access to services that everybody can use. And every time a place like Target does that, it just says, hey, you, you're not my customer. Mm-hmm. We don't want you here. Yeah. And, you know, that's a world I don't want to live in, but that's the world I live in. And, and so, you know, I would much rather shop at my local Latinx grocery store where they treat me better. And maybe I can't reach everything as easily, or maybe they've left a box in the aisle, but they're going to move it when I walk in this store, whereas Target's going to have those inaccessible point of sale machines forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's totally true. So like the economics of this also extend to other things like, um, you know, we would imagine that if if a corporation like Target could have a better accessibility standard then lots and lots of people could benefit because all their stores are exactly the same, but they're not going to do that. And also, um, you know, supporting uh, like a big box store is going to like drive out some of the smaller stores that you're talking about. So there's like a gentrification dimension to it also. Um, And there's something to like go back to hospitality about like the ways that we create relationships with people in our communities. Like, you know, in my community also, I have close relationships with like a few places where I feel like I can go and like be comfortable, like sensory wise and like stay there for a long time. And if, Starbucks comes in or whatever and kind of like drives them out, then I'm going to like lose access and I'm going to lose those relationships and the space is going to change the way that, I mean, already like the face of the neighborhood is changing through all these economic and racial processes. So all of these things are connected and it's like a good argument for like centralizing, you know, access is love or hospitality, um, as a way of kind of also counteracting some of those impulses towards like homogenous, like massive corporate, uh, you know, entities kind of existing at the same time that like those entities may make it possible for people like all over the country to go and buy this one type of thing that they make available at a lower price or whatever. In my opinion, far too often disability and disabled people are framed as a cost problem, uh, a, a location. We're just problems. So too often the environments are just we're just unwanted, unexpected, alien problems. And like the movie, to be hidden away. 
and kept out of sight except for our super secret ally that can somehow, you know, mitigate or get us food or whatever we need. And to me, it's throwing away a huge population of people that have incredible resources, incredible knowledge, and will lead to better and more interesting design options. Um, and, and I, you know, it, it just seems foolish. It just seems like culturally and structurally foolish to that you want to hold on to a mistaken belief rather than have access to a thousand more resources. So whenever I talk to nonprofits and they say, Oh, we can't do it because of, I'm like, I got 76% of a population ready to volunteer. You want some, you want us and they never want us, you know, but it's like this kind of, I hate seeing our people wasted. And then, you know, then when you have populations that are, not integrated and not not integrated in the sense of not useful use of useful to society then we have all the problems that we get in communities where that's true which we have in the disability community so it leads to a cycle of devaluation also yeah and you know and with with the way that the world is you know there's always going to be disabled people i always kind of laugh at this idea of we're going to eradicate x disease i'm like yes and tomorrow y disease will appear that you've never seen before like you know, in my book, I joked, like, we're like human cockroaches, you know, disabled people are never really going away. You know, you can just pretend like we are, um, you know, but it's the loss of the world. And and so for me, my response to all of this oppression and negativity is to say, what I really focus on is the resilience of disabled people. Mm-hmm. How can I help disabled people survive? And whether that's sharing knowledge with other disabled people, with their families, with people that care about them, with helping people document the work that they do, um, with supporting the efforts of people that are not me, that have other kinds of voices and other kinds of perspectives. You know, to me, that's what we have. We have each other because really the world always tells us they don't really want us. And I personally think that, you know, disability, and you know, you saw that with the SDS dances that, you know, hanging out with other disabled people is both intellectually really rich, but also really fun and exciting and diverse and wild. And um, I think it's a pretty swell world to be in. And I feel sorry that other people don't know that, but they don't. They're a loss. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.